The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. My guest this week on The Fold is Julie Tsu, who is a director, a writer, a producer, a photographer, an activist, and so many, many things, uh, an intimidating talent. Uh, The reason I'm talking to her today is that she uh, is the director of, and, and we collaborated with uh, her production company on the making of Takeout Kids, which is the first new show of the year for um, the spin-off's uh, sister production company, Hexwork Productions. It's an observational documentary series that basically attempts to show the the, the lives of children growing up um, in, in takeout stores all around Aotearoa. And it's four episodes, each one centering on a different shop and a different child, and it's just gorgeous. Like it, it, uh, it, it looks amazing. Like it's shot beautifully. That there's so much craft in the edit and the sound design, um, and and there's a kind of a, a boldness and a, and a confidence in the way that it just lets the lives be. Um, you know that there is just a real lack of holding your, your hand through it, and that's you know for a couple of minutes it, it takes takes a while to for you to understand what you're seeing. But once you do, it's and you, you know you realise you're you're getting this very intimate look into a kind of life that certainly for me was was not my experience growing up. But one of the most beautiful things about watching this thing be out there is the extent you can just feel the emotional heat from people for whom it was a version of their. Um, of their adolescence and the extent to which they recognize themselves or their parents in these these various situations. So uh, I'm gushing, but it's it's just genuinely a beautiful thing. And Julie spoke uh, at a launch event on Tuesday about overshooting and, and shooting hundreds of hours of footage. And you can kind of tell, like, there's just a lot there. But I think it's also telling what, what she selected and that... Um, it's actually just this sort of slow, contemplative windows into the lives of, of kids who are you know, growing up in in workplaces, essentially. And, and um, so that's we talk about that, but we, we also talk a, a lot about, you know, this, this project was funded out of a, uh, a New Zealand on air round that was targeted to Pan-Asian communities who, on a population basis, any, any way you care to slice it, just aren't 
particularly represented in our media to anything like the extent they are in, in our population. And there is a, you know, I think that, that Julius, you know, has said multiple times, and I think is really interesting about the representation is important, but it's insufficient um, on its own. And she talks quite compellingly, uh, you know, Julius Flundin Tereo, she is a, a member of Asian supporting Tina Rangatiratanga. She, um, she feels a I guess a kinship or a responsibility as as Tauiwi to to kind of wrestle with the immigrant relationship to Tangata Whenua. Um, that that is sort of in her work too. She is herself uh, an immigrant born in China, raised in Tamaki Makoto, and this this series is part of I think an ongoing quest to sort of examine that for both her and the, the various communities that she feels a part of. So yeah, seek out, take out kids if you can. I think it's 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 a really gorgeous piece of work. The Fold is brought to you by Vodafone. Uh, the, we are currently recording uh, through their world-class network technology. Couldn't recommend it more highly. One last tiny little thing before we get into it. Um, if you enjoy The Fold, uh, short of becoming a spin-off member to help support everything we do here, one thing which is really helpful is uh, rating and reviewing it on either Spotify or, or Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Just kind of keeps the keeps the energy up. Um, so yeah, do that if you can. Enough from me. Uh, here's something from Julie on The Fold. Kia ora, Julie, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, thank you for having me. Um, how are you feeling right now? You've got, you've got the series out, you've made this sort of beautiful, contemplative, um, sort of observational documentary series, and somehow also been inescapable in the media over the, the last week, which is not <laughs> normally what you associate with that kind with of a product. Oh, I think that's all thanks to Roosevelt, who's just secured so much publicity. Um, no, I feel like I'm on a real lovely warm buzz from just reading all the initial responses to the series because um, we've had it um, like we know what the series is and we've been working on it for such a long time um, but after almost a year like finally seeing the responses has been just like really heartwarming um, I don't know if like people realize how much those little responses mean to like a creator um, I think all of us like share stuff all the time you share something onto your Instagram story and it doesn't like it takes you two seconds, you might not think that much of it, but like reading it on the other side, everything means so much. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I th- I was kind of thinking about that, um, how two seconds of someone else means like so much to you on the other side. Yeah, it can float you through a whole whole day, right? And, mm. it, and it, there has been a real sort of emotion to it, like like people feel seen. Out of mm. it, which I'm sure was was part of the the aim of this, right? Yeah. But is there a sort of like not not an irony or or, or a surprise, but certainly in in a sense of like the prominence that the series has has had. You know, it was on the cover of Canvas, it was featured in Sunday. Um, Rama was on Breakfast. <laughs> you were on Kim Hill. I mean, these are these are the top tier slots for any. Um, you know, yes, Roosevelt crushed it. Um, <laughs> she's very good at her many jobs. But um, given that this, on some level, was about lives that are somewhere between invisible, certainly uncontemplated by a lot of of our media. Yeah, do, do you do you sense that sort of like an irony there, or is that a kind of mm. a relief to, that that this feels like a vector for an examination of that? Yeah, I think I haven't thought about it in that sense. I 
do think like the root of the idea comes from a very familiar place. Like the idea of seeing young people in a takeaway shop isn't so bizarre or unfamiliar that people don't recognise it. So I think it's the recognition which has made it spread so far because um, people remember a time that they've seen someone um, waiting for their parents to finish work or just sitting behind the counter. So, yeah, those moments that we want to know more about those people, I think, yeah, it's all just a shared experience, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it feels like like that. there's a unifying kind of fascination that you've, you've kind of unpicked with that. Um, we'll talk more about uh, Takeout Kids in the, in the back half of this, but I wonder if you could start by talking about your path to, to film or, or to, to this industry and, and what, what drew you there? Hmm. Um, I studied film, or maybe not. Back in high school, I started photography, so that's probably where it comes from, like a love of visual imagery. And when I do photography, it's similar, like the photography that I love the most is candid photography when you capture a moment of someone and they don't realise. So it's kind of transferring that into film, which is why I like observational documentaries. But yeah, I studied film, so, uh, well, I, no, <laughs> when I went to uni, I went to art school, I went to Elam for the first year and then didn't know what I wanted to do. I just went to uni straight out of high school and I think at that age I really didn't know what I wanted, um, didn't know who I was really, probably still don't, but <laughs> um, I tried so many subjects after that first year of art school because I um, just didn't know what I wanted to do, it was like crying all the time um, about identity I don't know life and then just settled on film and at one point I think it was also like I just wanted to leave uni so I had to just settle on one thing and stop changing my mind but yeah I think storytelling is important to me and I think art is one of the most powerful ways to be political and to make a difference and that's always been something I cared about a lot as well like social justice and making the world better as cliche as that is so that's kind of all tied it all to this now. I mean, that's interesting because you spoke very powerfully at the launch about the media's role in, in challenging some of these sort of oppressive conditions within society and the, the different way that we see one another or different um, identities within that as being like vitally important but insufficient on its own. Like what do you know? And you mentioned just then that there is a undeniable political element to it. You know, it's not aggressive or in your face, but but there is a thrust to why why these people and and why this process. Do you want, do you want to talk about what you know how you view those things as intertwined? I feel like a lot of the time people talk about representation as the thing that they care about, and I think that is important in a lot of ways. Like for people who haven't seen themselves represented at all. And I know, especially within Asian communities, within sort of the uh, relationship between Asian creatives and the media, representation is often the biggest thing that's talked about. And I would love us as a community to push further into thinking about what systemic change is beyond that. I just think so often we're just fighting for a seat at the table without challenging why or what's made that table be there in the first place, what's wrong with the table and the wider issues that surround that, and I think, <laughs> yeah. I, and I do because I do think that that Pan Asian community is is a vast one. It's grown very, very quickly. It, it has probably more of an immigrant community within it than, than any other, and yet it feels like there's a huge lag between the the sort of scale of it and the sheer volume of different stories and. 
that being reflected in in the media in the broader sense of the word. You know, and this this project came out of a a, a targeted Pan Asian round, which is I think the first of its type um, from. New Zealand on air uh, was came out of work from the Pan Asian Screen Collective. Like, do do you sense that for that community there is some sense of of a moment arriving, or of, of you know the whole scale of the fund mm-hmm. is comparatively tiny. It's a couple of episodes of the average um, high budget drama, but nonetheless, it, the the fact of it existing at all feels like um, some kind of a moment. Yeah, I think the Pan-Asian Screen Collective has done so much advocacy to really get um, or push for Asian communities and creatives to have a step forward. Um, And I think Shuchi Katari has been totally the force behind that. And you've seen that in the way the RFPs have come out from NZ On Air that have been really targeted. And I think we're really lucky as a community to have that because I think it it took Māori and Pacific communities so much longer to get to that stage. And I hope it's not just a blip that right now it's cool um, to see Asian content, but then in a year or two, it's no longer. And all of these emerging creatives that had a chance don't have another chance to shine. And I think it's also really hard when you're giving one shot and there's a lot of pressure and burden on that single story to be amazing. And if it's not, then it's like, oh, well, we tried and no one liked it. So, Um, which I have seen and heard anecdotally happen to already projects that have been funded through targeted rounds. And I just want to make the point that we've seen Māori Asian Pacific targeted rounds, but I think it's really harmful in a way to limit it just by ethnicity. And I think so many communities miss out, particularly like African or black communities, Middle Eastern communities who don't always know whether they fit into Asia because it's West Asia, but not. So if we can address that in some way and always, of course, having Māori funding targeted separately. But yeah, I just don't want it to be so limited by these community ethnicity boxes that my friend who is um, South African will never have a chance through this. Yeah. No, it's, it's very true that there's a can be a sense that this is your one shot, don't blow it, that puts way too much weight on it. And, you know, the targeted rounds are beautiful in a way they encourage this expression, but also anyone who doesn't feel like they fit into any of those, you know, is really, mm-hmm. is really on the on the outer there. Yeah, so it's good. Like, I would never say it's not good to do targeted funding, and on, obviously I benefit from that as well. I just think there's always ways to make it better. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, to, to the sort of, this new incarnation of New Zealand on, on air's credit is that they do seem to be very mm. engaged in the process of evolving and listening and, 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 and iterating in a way that probably wasn't common to, to previous generations of it. Totally. I feel like my earlier point about representation as being what Asian creatives are often so focused on is around this idea of kind of what you were saying, like because there's such a big immigrant crossover with Asian communities, that there's always this strong desire to be um, seen as belonging to this land for lots of diaspora communities, not just necessarily in Aotearoa. But I think that forgets about the wider context of why Asian communities are marginalised, which at its roots does go back to colonisation again. And I think that's the part that's like missing or doesn't like there's not a nuanced enough understanding of that so when Asian communities or immigrant communities are fighting so hard to belong and to be seen as Kiwi um, that negates the actual true belonging that Tangata Whenua have here 
Um, and I know I talk about this quite a lot, but like, I think it's really important that we don't assert our belonging to that level, that we forget to kind of fight for the wider issue of justice for everyone and making sure that by supporting decolonization and not just as a buzzword, but systemic change that affects Tangata Whenua first, then that is what will bring Asian communities forward as well. Uh, not that that's the reason to do that, but yeah, I feel like that my point about systemic change being the thing, not just representation. I don't know if I'm communicating that properly. No, I think, I think you are. I mean, the, the, the issue with, you know, sometimes it can be like, I cast someone mm. in this or, you know, we have a crew member who is. That is sufficient versus uh, like uh, the, the, this story came from and is told by and feels authentic to that, that community. And that, that sometimes kind of, you know, like the, there is a sort of a, a superficiality to some sort of representation that can happen on, on you know, for example, our big budget dramas where it's just like, it's just a kind of a casting kind mm. of guess who type, type situation. Like that thing of feminism being about like having more women CEOs, but that doesn't actually disrupt the structures of power that um, mean that having lots of CEOs or an, an unequal distribution of power, you're st- like the same power structures are there, you just put a woman's face on it. That's yeah. sort of what I'm trying to get to, yeah. I, I think that, that makes sense. Another thing that you, you spoke about and, and have talked about before, I think, is this idea of the exceptional immigrant and and it felt like it was to some extent that you know I listened to your interview with Kim Hill on Saturday and there was that that question about how you have really gone in boots and all to the kind of quote unquote Kiwi experience or something something of that nature and I think you you gave quite an interesting reply about like there isn't and shouldn't be a kind of a, a model way of engaging and uh, which therefore makes other kind of basically experiences of living um, in this country as an immigrant lesser or, mm-hmm. you know, by, by comparison. And that's one of the things that I, I love that it's just sort of implicit in Take Out Kids, that these are, it's just for New Zealand lives of, of kids growing up and, and just that they are sort of at once sort of, you know, familiar, but also not at all the sort of stereotype of it in, in a way that felt kind of freeing and, and, and mm. like it, yeah, again, you know, you can see from Brooklyn's comment on the uh, the YouTube clip that you know, that's me. Like that's <laughs> that's a thing that seems to be coming out of the, a lot of the emotional response to it. You know, what 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 do you how how is that sort of exceptional immigrant myth damaging? Yeah, I think um, because there hasn't been enough stories about just everyday immigrant lives. The ones that you see are the stories of success, the stories um, of immigrants who are really grateful to be given an opportunity to be here, who've worked really hard, and that becomes a trope. And then when you see, like at Christmas, you know, when there was that Filipino family that was about to be deported, and all the framing was like, but he's worked so hard to be here, his wife is a nurse, and that's framed in this really like, they've worked so hard, they deserve to be here. Mm. But I think people don't need to be deserving to be here. To turn the rights that be, everyone else yeah, has, right? They don't need to be exceptional. Um, but I think so so much of the time we push that exceptional narrative is um, the reason to accept immigrants. But we're allowed to be horrible people too <laughs> and we should still be accepted. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of why I want to help disrupt the idea of what Kiwiism is. And I grew up and I know a lot of immigrant kids grow up with, like, I thought 
being called a Kiwi was a compliment. Like when someone would say, oh, you're a real Kiwi, you sound just like a Kiwi. Like I took that as a real compliment because that was me um, rejecting my Chinese side as a young person. Striving for that versus necessarily meant walking away from where you came from. But then you grow up and you realise that that means that they're never going to accept your parents who will never lose their accent. Um, So all the privilege that you have will never be afforded to those communities. So you're actually rejecting your own community by thinking that it's a good thing to be labelled a Kiwi. Because the flip side of the exceptional immigrant story is the... The scapegoat The scapegoating, like, you know, the Chinese-sounding names mm-hmm. um, story of, of five or six years ago, um, you know, which was part of the attribution to the increase in housing prices to, mm-hmm. to a level which is about a third mm-hmm. what they are now. So... Cutting off the yeah, you know, cutting off the overseas investment clearly had zero impact on that. You know, um, you also see the like stealing our jobs narrative, despite the fact that ask any economist and an immigrant creates more jobs than they take just by virtue of being a, a part of the society that that they join. You know, how much of the the sort of the immigrant experience do you think feels kind of impacted by or, or framed within it by by the, that sort of the sort of scaremongering coverage that was until very recently, maybe still is quite common to mm. um, to that narrative. Yeah, it's super common and it's super delicate. Like it's so easily tapped into even things like the, the outbreak with COVID at the moment. If one community is um, seen to be the majority ethnicity of cases, you know how quickly that will end up turning, um, which would never happen for Pahia communities. So it's it's still an ongoing thing. But I think because it's so delicate, that's why immigrant communities tend to stay really private and try not to put themselves out there. And part of the reason, I think, also that we don't have enough of these different narratives because people are afraid to start something or be seen as ungrateful or critical. And I think younger people, um, people like, like me who have grown up with less of that burden we're allowed to be more outspoken because we have the privilege of being accepted and sounding, looking or sounding um, different to our parents. So, um, yeah. Um, we might take a quick break now and, and come back and, and talk about something that's you know, a little less naughty in some respects, which is, which is Take Out Kids itself, um, which I'm, I'm really excited to do. Well, let's talk about uh, Take Out Kids now. Like, when did the, the idea sort of start forming in your mind and and how did it evolve both in sort of content and form as you went through it? Because it's got this very, it is, it is pure observational. Like there is no kind of narrative kind of shoehorned into it. You're just watching these uh, these kids' lives. Where does the idea come from? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the idea comes from a lot of places. I talked about at the launch as well. Like I think it comes from growing up with absent parents who are always working and so I was left home alone, and um, I think that's probably a more common experience than I realise. But it comes from oh, from reading after reading Rose Lewell's piece in Pantograph, I realise it also comes from when I worked at McDonald's for five years. So knowing like a hospo background and how you view customers from that other end, and um, and also how customers view you, I guess, and sort of especially with regulars like being able to watch regulars grow up, but probably regulars watching you grow up as well. And it comes from just observing. I think mostly it comes from just being curious about that image of a young person behind the counter and wanting to know more about their lives. And I think often I see like images 
as I'm driving, I'll just see something on the street and I'm like, that's really interesting. And then I just want to know more about that person's life. So it's just being curious about everyday people. And um, yeah. You've got such incredible subjects and they're, they're so, they feel like they also contain like a whole, all, all the multitudes of adolescence, I guess, from, from at, at the, the margins of it, from like a Rama to a, to a John kind of thing um, in terms of the age span. And, and some of them just give you so much uh, in terms of the material and, and others. Like Weirdly, John, John was actually my favorite episode, uh, even though he's probably the most taciturn in some respects. But I related so hard to that kind of quiet, insular, moody teenage boy <laughs> energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, well, you know, how, how did you how did you find them? And what, what were the sort of challenges of drawing material out of these wildly different personality types? So how we found them was through doing a public call out. Thank you to the spinoff for helping with that. And we got people to nominate shops that they knew who had young people in and around them. So we got a lot of responses that way. Jin, our production manager, called so many shops um, asking if they had kids, <laughs> which is funny. But yeah. We sort of knew from the start that families were unlikely to nominate themselves because, again, like immigrant families are often quite insular. I don't know if that's the word private. Uh, They don't like to put themselves out there Um, and humble, too, I think. So we were really lucky to have these families. We met a few other families as well. We wanted to really uh, like start a relationship with these families before we started filming them to make sure that they knew that we were genuine in our intentions. Every family was very different. Like John's family was quite, they were the most private and suspicious and like they had no idea who the spinoff was, thought the whole thing was a scam (laughs) um, right up to the end. Uh, So yeah, every family had a different approach. I think Martinique was maybe maybe the hardest to um, film with because she, at some points, Daryl, the cinematographer was like, I really don't think she wants us to be here. Like she's so introverted and shy that sometimes it really looks like she doesn't want you there and that we you should could almost leave. Seem to, like <laughs> withdrawing from shots or almost trying to disappear. Like you can imagine yeah, her trying to escape. Totally, totally. Daryl would be like, every time I repo the camera, she's like turned her face again. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it was really lovely that we got all these different senses. Like I think a lot of people now have watched the Rama episode and might be expecting that all the episodes are like that, but there's just no one else like Rama. She's her own star energy. She really is. She came to the, the, the launch event on Tuesday. <laughs> and turned it into her own concert. Oh, my God. <laughs> just dancing, singing, like just hauling people out of the crowd. She yeah. She feels like she's going to be somebody. I mean, she, everyone's going to be she somebody. But she, she's, she's got a lot going on. Yeah. So speaking of Daryl, like, I mean, and, you, you know, you spoke lovingly about the, the, this thing feels very, like, curated in terms of ev- everyone involved in it. Um, and it was, I think, an entirely, uh, Asian kind of group that that made it. Did, was that had, had you experienced that before? And like, you know, how did that mm. impact what people, what the sort of the crew gave to the project? Yeah, I think uh, I've been lucky that most projects that I work on are um, majority POC crew, uh, mostly because the subject matter is usually related in some way. So that hasn't that wasn't a different thing for me at all. I was conscious at one point. I knew that the crew was quite East Asian focused. Like most people were Chinese, it was just Joey who's um, Filipino, and I thought that that might give us like an East Asian bias when we were working with some communities that weren't um, East Asian or even Asian at all, um, especially Martinique with the Samoan um, takeaway shop. 
I was really conscious that I didn't want to be telling a story that wasn't mine or really feeling like takeaway, takeout kids wasn't a story that was mine because that wasn't my experience. But I feel like there was still some way of relating to all of the stories and the characters. So it made it feel okay on some level. I hope that's not me just like justifying that process. But I, I really love the crew. I think we all um, worked really well together. Yeah, it's, it seems like, like there's a sense of mission that you could kind of, feels like it comes through the screen for everything from the, those beautiful kind of moody soundscapes that kind of give it, they really mm. kind of hold it emotionally through some of those like lingering silences kind of thing. It's been really nice hearing all the responses that people have had and when friends message me about the show or an episode or a, a particular young person, it reminds me of something else, like this extra backstory because I have all this backstory from the literally hundreds of hours of footage um, and so much is not in the final episodes. Uh, so I feel like I'm giving all these like extra um, facts and um, backstory, like what, what would you call it? Like a um, like the extra section on a DVD yeah, movie. Yeah, totally. um, and there's so much, there's so much. And I feel sad that we couldn't have fit it all in. Like my dream would have been half hour episodes or like one hour episodes because I just think all of it is so interesting and says so much, like so many moments say, so much about them um, and lots of really beautiful shots were lost as well but we were just trying to make something that made some sort of narrative sense uh, for each episode and to fit it for something an online audience would watch which is probably not half hour episodes <laughs> of no one talking. <laughs> it feels like you did, you get a vision of their lives and almost more so than the narrative it's like you sort of absorb what it is to be them. And one of the things about that that kind of struck me is that I feel like there's this kind of movement at the moment, which is, comes from a good place of like, you know, trying to kind of police the extent to which work kind of creeps into people's lives and, um, you, know, in, in, you know, outside of work hours and, and um, the, the extent to which devices kind of take over and stuff. And then you just look at this and you're like, the the hours that these these whānau work and the way that their kids are part of it is really of necessity. Like this thing is probably uneconomic without it, but it's also the only way they can spend time together. You know, that's one of the things that I found so powerful about it is the the extent to which like you you sort of glimpse this life, but you don't really contemplate the totality of it until you until you watch this. You, well, yeah, what, what, you know, did that, did that strike you that the length of these days and the load that that's carried? And you know, we talk about you know trying to have work-life balance when you're living in your shop in some some of these cases. You know, what 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 really kind of struck you as you as you you know as you shot this? Yeah, I I don't know if that does come through in the episodes, like actually how long the hours are for these families. Two of the families, they get up at 4am every day to prep for the shop. One of those shops opens at 7, but the other opens at 9, and they're still up five hours before it opens to make food for it. And that's six days a week. So you just know that these families are exhausted all the time, and they don't have time to sit in here and do a podcast and talk about privilege and decolonization and all these things Like when you're living it. I think the weight of that is just so different to my reality, so I, I can't even understand it all the time. I sometimes feel like when we, we you know, when we have these conversations, we're having them about a part of like we're leaving a whole part of society that is essentially beyond the reach of 
a lot of that. And if we, you, you know, like I, I talked to an Uber driver the other day who'd gone from working eight hour days to 13 hour days to comp the same income. And, you know, you raise the minimum wage, there's no impact on him. Like there's just a, there, there sometimes feels like there's this invisible section of society that's overwhelmingly people of color and particularly Im- immigrants um, who are in some cases running their own business. And, you know, something about take out kids is not the, the kind of core intention, but certainly in terms of that politics that you described, like a byproduct of is it, it makes you think about that. And I certainly feel like in terms of the politicians who discuss this kind of thing, they just don't feel present in that discussion. Would you agree? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I think even us, we were so distanced from it that politicians with all that wealth and privilege, especially the ones that have been there for decades, they just have no idea and they can only talk about um, inequality in an abstract sense. Yeah, I mean, I could talk a lot about the politics side of it. Like, I think it's ridiculous that Labour has a majority and they won't fix the issue of inequality that we have in this country and that COVID's just made it worse and the rich get richer and the poor and the people in the middle get further down like I I don't understand why you can't just fix that just fix it yeah um, it's certainly like when you are you know whether whether it's raising a minimum wage or creating you know putting in another public holiday like a public holiday doesn't exist to a family that's running a a business like 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 that so there's not that those things don't matter but how do you make the impacts of those changes felt by all rather than by those who work in a particular style that is, um, you know, common to your to to your experience, I suppose. You know, when you now that you've actually got a little bit of distance from it, and and it's out, what is it about the way that it's been received, the emotion that's kind of palpable in terms of people's responses to it, that that pleases you? sort of most about it? I think my favourite responses are the ones by people who did grow up with similar experiences or even if they didn't, they still felt like they did. Like that's why I really love Rose's piece in Pantograph because she articulates with words all of the feelings that I think we were trying to showcase about the just the a length of time that you spend in these environments and the weight of that that you don't even realise until years and years later you properly contemplate what it means for your parents to work that hard uh, to make a life for you that it now makes you see things totally different to them. Um, the losses that come from that, even through things like language. And yeah, I think there's a lot of loss that is created because these families are trying to create like an upwards class mobility situation for their kids that they're essentially creating a world where their kids won't ever experience what they will, but that creates just a difference between them that won't ever be brought back together. I don't know if that... No, no, it does. I think I saw you um, writing somewhere online about the, the sort of erasure of the past that is, often happens with the immigrant experiences that you you start, there's almost like a year zero moment for the parents that, that, that happens there. And, and uh, yeah, and that sense of loss or dislocation that that creates and then you know the sort of I guess I guess that's almost like an identity dysphoria that happens and um and kids who grow up kind of caught between like that so what what's what's next for you like I, I gather that you're making a, a like a longer form documentary about Ming Fern who I think is like a fascinating subject Do you want to talk a bit about that it's really exciting He is a fascinating subject. I feel like I have a lot of thoughts about him, but I don't necessarily know if that will all come across in the doco, Um, partly because I think he's very good at media because he's been doing it for years and years. So he kind of knows how to 
make himself appear in the way that he wants you to see him. So, yeah, I think it will be interesting. What um, attracted to, to you to him as a subject? Well, obviously he's Chinese and he's fluent in te reo, so from my own interests in te reo and um, te ao Māori, that was fascinating to me. Um, and also just exploring how he benefits from that um, as someone who is really mostly well-regarded within te ao Māori, how he benefits from his um, ability to fluently kōrero, but how much or how he does or does not maybe give back to te ao Māori in the same way. Because I think it comes to my own um, desire to explore what the role of we here are in challenging the, systemic, the systems and structures that we live in. And I don't know if he necessarily does that because he does come from such a privileged position. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> the basis of where I want to address uh, that documentary, but I don't necessarily know if it will come to play that way. That's that's kind of why you do it, though, right? Like, <laughs> to discover. To, to, to find out. Um, well, it also sounds like another real chilled out one <laughs> for you, um, but that's but that's kind of what, what makes your work so so exciting. Um, thank you so much for coming uh, on the fold today, Julie. I've, I've, really, anyone who's listening, um, if you haven't watched Take Out Kids, it is, it's ravishingly beautiful and it's it's in a totally different style you get into the rhythm of it you really kind of see some things and see it see a slice of this country that you you definitely wouldn't have otherwise so yeah thanks for making it thanks for coming on thanks so much for having me that was julie too on the fold uh i want to thank Tahe butler for recording and editing this episode uh, Vodafone for making it possible Jane Yee for running the Spinoff Podcast Network, the Spinoff members for uh, you know, without whom none of us would be here uh, and you for listening, cheers Kia ora e te iwi, Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.